I was recalling a, a football coach who said, me, not we. He has this phrase, me, not we. And the idea is that he's talking about unity for a particular football team so that way that they can um, aim for that common goal. One on the same page. If I get everyone to be united, we're going to accomplish our task. Me, not we. This idea of unity is something that it's threaded throughout our country. After all, we are the United States of America. And you know that even after the last election, our current president even said, well, it is my job to have all of America, both Democrats and Republicans, to come under the United States. I'm going to be the, pa- I'm going to be the um, president over the entire nation. But we also know that that's not really working out too well. You see, unity, usually we're compelled to unite when we have a common interest. So, for instance, if I have a common interest in the food, we're going to probably gather around a table because of pizza. If we have a common interest in a sports team or if we have a common interest in something, you name it, usually that's the thing that unites us or we strive because we have a common cause. That's the idea of unity, but that's the idea of unity in the worldly sense. You see, but we're Christians. We are those who have called Jesus Lord of our lives. And so when we think about unity, we have to think about God. That has to be the starting point. And when we think about unity, we think about God. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But in that statement by God, we also know that God is a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are united, but for one common purpose, and that is to bring glory and honor to his name. That is the God who he serves. He is united. And not only that, but he has a desire to bring his children to himself. And this idea of unity is something that was expressed by Jesus in John chapter 17. He prayed that we would be one just as the Father and Christ were one. And this idea of unity, it was given over to the apostles, specifically the apostle Paul, who also was talking about unity. He's always talking about unity. For instance, if you were to look at Ephesians chapter four, verse two, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity and the spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on, he says, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of Father who was above all, through all, and in you all. Therefore, because of that hope that we have in God, we are to stay united for one common goal, and that is to bring glory and honor to our great God. It's not unity for the sake of just uniting, but there's a purpose, there's an interest that we have, and that is to exalt Christ, to further and prop the gospel message to all of the nations. You see, in this text, three three observations, they teach us to strive together in unity for the sake of the gospel. And today, obviously, I'm talking about unity, but specifically, I'm going to talk about three things about unity. And number one, we're going to talk about the reasons for unity. Why? Should we unite? Two, we're going to talk about the characteristics of unity. What is, what is unity? What does it look like? And three, we're going to talk about the means. How do we do it? How do we attain this unity? We're going to see them in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And the first thing that I want to point out is a word, therefore. 
it connects to the previous thought that the Apostle Paul was speaking. And it says right here in verse 27, start Philippians 1, 27, it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we see here that Paul has already given them a command. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, to what you profess, what you speak about, as far as your understanding, your belief in Jesus, your life needs to match. Conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy. And then he goes on. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So that was his charge right there. He says to these Philippian Christians, I want you to strive together, one spirit, one mind. And that word one mind, literally it's soul, it's one souled. I want you to have this common goal, and that is to propagate further the gospel. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 1, there is another thing I want to point out, and that is the word if. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... In Greek, this is what they call a first-class conditional statement. It is a rhetorical tool to persuade you. I, I want to say, well, if this is true, then there's going to be some type of a response. Another way of thinking about this is if we were to replace this word if with the word since, because these are true statements here. He says, therefore, since there is any encouragement in Christ, and I think we would all agree that there is encouragement in Christ, right? Yes, <laughs> Well, since there is consolation of love, we would agree with that, correct? Yes, we believe that there's consolation of love. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, since any af- affection and compassion. So these are the reasons that he is giving for this unity. He's pointing out, look what God has done for you. And he says right here in this first reason, if there is any encouragement in Christ. What's the need of the encouragement? Again, if we were to talk more about the book of Philippians, we know at this particular time that Paul the Apostle, he is actually in prison. Tradition says that he was in the Roman prison at this particular time because he was being faithful to proclaim and preach the gospel. And because of that, he is in prison for his testimony. But yet he's still writing letters and he's sending them out and encouraging other Christians. Hey, you might be persecuted. You might have to suffer also. So therefore, you need to have this encouragement that is in Christ. Look at Philippians 1 verse 29. And he says here to these Christians of Philippi, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You see, Paul, he is completely encouraged in Christ. And because of that encouragement, because of that love for Christ, it allows him, it it encourages him, it motivates him to continue to be faithful in the very thing that God had for him. He is encouraged. And he's saying, likewise, you Philippians, you need to be encouraged in Christ. Don't try to find your encouragement in all of these other things and worldly things. And the same thing with us. Are you drawing and are you finding all of your encouragement in Christ? It's a fear. It's in him. It's in Christ. And the second reason 
He says, if there is any consolation of love. And this word consolation, it's only used here in the New Testament. Some have suggested that there's a slight difference for, from comfort in the, the word encouragement, paraclesis. It also can be used as comfort as well. And it seems like it's just an overlapping statement. He's just elaborating more. Some have thought that the first word it refers more to um, the return of Christ and here that there's a more of a consolation that has to do with the earth, but there's nothing really that's conclusive in this text. But again, it's slightly different than the previous statement that there's still consolation, but it's consolation of love. It's, it's a comfort of love. And it's different because the first one, it's we find comfort or encouragement in Christ. In this one, it's consolation of, of love. Another way of understanding is this, the source of love, it comes from God. Some have looked at this text and said, we see the triune God, that it is the Father who is the subject. He is the one who is um, extending love to the Christians of Philippi. And in that extending love, they are, they, are they are recipients. And because of that, they are comforted because of the love of God. Similarly, when we worship the triune God through the name of Christ, there's encouragement, there's comfort, there's consolation. And God, excuse me, and God is the one who is doing it by his spirit. He's comforting the people. The third reason, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and this word fellowship is koinonia, we, we say that all the time. We talk about love feasts and fellowship. And this is idea of, idea of participation. But when he says the fellowship of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, it's God. The Spirit is the subject. The Spirit is the one who is bringing in this fellowship and this participation. He is the one who is initiating the people of God into a corporate body to participate in fellowship in the things of God for the glory of God. So it is the Holy Spirit who baptizes believers into the body of Christ, making us the church. And we even here, we are the local expression of that church because of the work of the Spirit of God. We have fellowship, participation, specifically participation in the gospel, participation in furthering the gospel. And there's a fourth reason here. He says, if any affection and compassion. I guess we would all agree, I'm sure we would, there is affection. And when Paul uses this word affection, it, it's it's... This word literally means like the internal organs. It, it, it's, it's visceral. It's emotional. The love that we experience from God, it's not just a heady intellectual thing. God is moved. Now, don't get me wrong. God is unchanging. He is not emotive in a sense that he changes in who he is. However, what Paul is trying to communicate using words of men is that God is moved for you. We see this. Same idea being expressed by Paul. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection. That's the same word, splankton. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul was so 
enamored with the love of God and receiving that, he's even moved emotionally loving the people of Philippi. And God, again, is the same way he loves his people, moved for his people. You see, all of these things right here, these four reasons, it's all about God. It's all about what God has done. And I know many of you, you have children, you have kids, and you know, they don't deserve anything that you do for them that is good. You feed them, you clothe them, um, and some even have siblings, right? And you tell the older one, hey, I'm going to give you some cash. They don't even have to work for it. Hey, I'm going to give you some cash. You guys go have some fun. Go do some things. I want you to use the resources and everything that I've given you to be a blessing in their lives. And what do they do? They spend it on themselves. (laughs) Ungrateful kids. (laughs) But see, that's our father. God says, I've lavished you with all of the blessings, all the spiritual blessings from heaven. And we'll take what God has given us and we say, no, I don't want to do what you want me to do with your people, God. That shouldn't be so. And what the apostle here is saying is that because all these things that God has done, This is your motive. This is the reason why you need to be united. Because I have redeemed you. And you're not your own. But there's another reason. And you see this in verse 2. And and Paul says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Now, Paul is a shepherd. He has a shepherd's heart. He loves the people. And he is saying, I have founded this church. I've preached the word to you. You've come to know Jesus through my preaching. I have walked with you. And because of that, make my joy complete. Make me happy, unlike many other shepherds. For instance, if you were to look at 3 John in chapter 4, John the apostle says, no greater joy than this than to see my children walk in truth. He uses the same word for joy. If we were to look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, but let them do so with joy, not with grief, because that will be unprofitable for you. So if you want to make Pastor Bill happy or joyful, you want to make uh, Pastor Carl um, joyful or um, many of these men, George Crawford, walk in obedience and walk in unity. Because if you don't, guess what? It's, it's not profitable for you. It's not profitable. So we see here, this is the reason for unity, because of all of the things that God has done. But there's more, and that is the characteristics. of. And Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, uniting a spirit, intent on one purpose. And what we see here, there's, there's four characteristics here. He says, by being of the same mind. And in some of your translations, it might say thinking the same thing. And this word, it's franeo, it's actually used 10 times um, in the book of Philippians. Um, for instance, if you were to look at it, it says, look at um, Philippians 2. Look at verse 5. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Um, I know I'm reading out of the NAS, and it says this attitude, that same word is franeo. Have the same mind. Have, um, look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. He says, let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, 
have this attitude, have this franeo, have this same thinking. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. So we see that there is a sense of uh, agreement. There's a sense of um, thinking the same thing. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and look at verse 2. And he says here, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Sintahi to live in harmony within the Lord. And again, this word harmony, it's the same word, franeo. I want you to think together in the Lord. I want you to think the same things, the same idea. This is threaded. Right thinking leads to right living. You cannot divorce right thinking from living. If you think wrong, if you think and ponder on the wrong things, that's what you're going to live a life that's not going to be in obedience to God. You have to think right. That is the reason why we have to have objective truth. We have to look outside of ourselves. That's why we have the scriptures. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. If we look at Romans 12, 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we are in the word of God, being shaped by the word of God, aided by the spirit of God, we are going to live in a right way. The way that we have agreement and think the same way is that we are all immersed in the scriptures of God. Paul goes on. Second characteristic of unity is maintaining the same love. Maintaining the same love. And this same love, it has an origination. It has a source. It's the same. It's not different loves. Maintain different loves. It doesn't say that. It says maintain the same love. Again, this reminds us that God is love, and the source of love is God. We cannot love apart from the grace of God. I am reminded, even with Paul, he says to the Thessalonians, um, he's concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, but, I, but you have been taught by God to love one another. If you are Christian, if you have believed in Jesus and repented of your sin and been born of the Spirit of God, God teaches you how to love. And just like what I think George was saying earlier, you can't live in isolation. You can't live in fear. You have to worship the Lord collectively. There has to be people to love, and there has to be people to receive love from. We have to be in community. Maintaining the same love. And then he goes on, united in spirit. And this word here, it's literally um, one commentary called it one sold. It's being just bound together. One sold. And then the fourth characteristic is intent on one purpose. And again, this gets us back to verse 27, when it says, let me just go back up to Philippians 1, because I want you to hear this again. And I'm going to read the latter half of that verse. It says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. To be intent on one purpose 
is to remember that it's all about God and his glory. It's about every member doing its part and doing its share in order to propagate, to further the gospel message. It's coming together under a common cause, again, to bring glory and honor to our great God. That's what unity, that's what it looks like. That's the characteristic of unity. But then what about the means? How do we do this? What about how do we do this? And this is where we go to verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And the first how-to or the first means of this unity, how do we attain that is do nothing from selfishness. Do nothing from selfishness. The idea of doing nothing from selfishness, or I should say it this way, selfishness arises when we have our own desires and we want our own way. You guys, look at, turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. Go to James chapter 4. And I'm going to look at verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? It says very clearly that the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, it's because of your pleasure. It's because of those things that are within us that we want. It's, I got to have my way. I have to do it my way. I want to do it the way I want to do it. Paul is saying here, if you want to attain unity, you you cannot walk in selfishness. Now, the same word for selfishness, it has this idea of like a politician. If I was to paint a picture for you, a a politician who was jockeying for a particular um, rank or position. And so he's using cunning and trickery or whatever kind of deceit in order to attain that particular position, no matter how bad or hurtful he's going to be against someone. Practically, what this looks like is, what color of the carpet do we want? And we argue about the color of the carpet. Well, I want it blue. I want it green. I want it red. And then we have three different factions about the color of the carpet, which has nothing to do with gospel intentionality. For us, like even lately, this can also look like, well, I don't want my fellowship group to meet at 7.30 in the morning. I don't want to go to the synagogue. No, I don't want to meet at 1 o'clock. Not that any of you guys would do that. <laughs> and so what happens is there becomes this murmuring and this complaining, and we're saying, this is what I don't want to do it. But the common purpose is the furtherance of the gospel, and we have to accommodate all of these children so that they will be growing up in the ways of the Lord so we can be a testimony to them. You see, where we, see we lose it to our preferences. Many times the disagreements come not because of gospel truth, but the preference. We have to die to ourselves, And this is what Paul the Apostle is saying. If there's a preference, die to it. Don't be selfish. Don't feel or think, oh, I got to have it my way or the highway. No. It doesn't have to be your way. Get preference. So that's one of the means. But we also see a second means or how to attain that unity is, it says right here, do not have empty conceit. 
Some of your translations may say it a little bit different. It might say empty glory. This word, empty conceit, it's actually used one time. There's a lot of one-timers in this, in this verse. And it's kenoxdoxia. It's, it's, it's a compound word. Kenos meaning empty or vain. Doxa meaning glory. Doxa meaning glory. Actually, we can see glory um, written a lot throughout the scriptures. Let me look at um, Philippians 1 verse 11. Paul says, I haven't been filled with the fruitlessness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory or doxa and praise of God. So we see there that glory, it, it should go to God. Okay, so let's look at 2.11. Philippians 2.11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, again, it's doxa, of God, the Father. And again, what we see here is when we talk about glory, glory has to go to God alone. And Jesus, when he's addressing the Pharisees, he says, how can you believe who receive glory from one another? How can you believe when you decide to um, pursue glory for yourself? It's not a good thing. And the unfortunate thing, and when we talk about um, this glory, sometimes this selfish ambition, these things also take place even in a church. Look at Philippians 1.17. And this kind of gets back to another word earlier. And he was talking about here, but 117, it says, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. One of the worst things a preacher of the gospel can do is have selfish ambition. Oh, I want the applause. Oh, I want the praise. Oh, look at me. Look how great I am. Aren't I eloquent? That is an abomination before God. False motives. But this can also happen to any of you at a prayer meeting. Um, We think about pretentious worship. Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And this is Jesus, our Lord, who speaks... He says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may receive so that they may be honored by men. (laughs) Truly, I say to you, they have they have their reward in full. You see, right here, he's talking about giving. And many times and many times you'll see this with actors and, oh, well, they have this charity. They gave so much money and there's this big old look how great he is. And that's what you see. Well, it's the same idea, even in a church sometimes, unfortunately. You might give, and hey, look at me. Look how much I'm giving. This is what Ananias and Sapphira did. If you were to look at Acts chapter, um, I think it's 6. If selling their home and say, oh, yeah, we gave it all to the church. But they didn't. They lied. And what happened? They died. It's pretentious. Look at verse 5, 6, 5, Matthew 6, 5. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Again, the reward is to be seen by men. 
Oh, look how great I'm praying. You know, the guy that's in the back room, and he starts to pray, and he stands up, and he puts his arms, oh, God. And everyone looks at him, and he gets all of the eyes staring at him. That's the idea of what's going on here. Look at uh, Matthew 6, 16. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will not be men. When they are fasting, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, these are people who are looking to, uh, um, to be more, to be applauded for their, spiritual, their spirituality. Look at me, I'm so great. I'm so spiritual. And that's what the Pharisees did. You see, empty glory, that's what that looks like. And you guys know those people. You probably have those guys, and I know it's not any of you here. But you have those friends. You know, you've never seen them pray before, never seen them at a prayer meeting. You're about to have dinner. You're hungry. Your stomach is growling. And they want to have a five to ten minute prayer meeting right there. It's like, come on, man. Or you have that beautiful Christian girl. Guy has no desire for spiritual things. And all of a sudden, he's super spiritual when he's next to her. It's pretentious. It's We have to... Stay away from that kind of things. We, again, want glory only to go to God. That's the means. That's one of the means for unity. Let's go back to Philippians. And he says again in verse 3, we're coming to the third point here. Third means or how to attain unity. That is with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And this word humility, it's, this particular word is used seven times in the New Testament altogether. There's another word that's probably used about 200 times. And, but this word here, it's used sparingly in other Greek literature. And anytime this word uh, was, it was used in a derogatory sense about um, being humble. Now, in Greek culture, they frowned upon humility. That was not something that Greeks wanted to do. I'm not humble. Do not be humble. And to a certain extent, we see that also even in our culture today. We talk about humility, and you see it a lot in like, whether it's entertainers, sports stars, you name it. Many times it's about me. It's about me, and they're um, wanting to promote themselves. It's all about me. But humility, it's, it's a virtue that God desires. And the greatest picture that we have of humility, and I read it to you already, is Christ, who was fully exalted, came down, became a man, to die the death of a slave on a cross for you and I. That is the greatest amount of humility. And when we look at him and his pattern, we dare want to exalt ourselves greater than God in the flesh. It says here again in verse 3, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And this word here, more important again, it's used five times in the New Testament. It's used three times in the book of Philippians. Look at Philippians 3. Look at verse 8. 
And it reads, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of their surpassing. That word surpassing, and I think many of your versions says the same thing, surpassing value. That's Again, that's the same word. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So his desire to know Christ was surpassed. It exceeded his expectation. Look at 4 verse 7. Same idea here. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Again, the word surpasses his comprehension. Well, it exceeds that. It's up here. It stands out. It's above. And the idea of this word, um, which is more important, or surpassing the idea, it's a, it has a preposition, huper, which means above or over. Um, echo means to have or hold, to, to hold above. It's basically to stand out. So when we are to regard one another, we are to look at someone's actually who's at a higher rank than us, higher, above us, more important than us. This is what he's trying to communicate here. Hey, don't ever let someone frown upon you. And we want to dig our heels into the ground. And this is my ground, man. But no, that's not for us. We are to consider, regard, think that other people are literally greater or not greater, that's the wrong word, more important than us. And when you think about your own sin, so if you're doing these things, when we're talking about having the same mind, having the mind of Christ, and if you're saturating your life with the word of God, you'll realize, aided by the spirit of God, the sin that is already within you. So for instance, when you first became a Christian, you knew, okay, I know I shouldn't shoot anybody, but I can go live the rest of my life. I know I shouldn't steal. I know I shouldn't kill anybody. I know, I know these things. But the more you start to walk with the Lord, and the more you start to read the scriptures, the more you start to, reveal, start to understand the, and the things that come out of the heart. And you're starting to become more aware of you know, that person that comes to you, and they kind of rub you the wrong way. And inside, you're cursing them out, but you don't say anything. So it looks like you're mild manner and you're controlled, but in your heart, you've already sinned. So you're aware of that. So when you're aware more of your own sin, it's going to help you to be more patient with other people. It's going to make you or help you or assist you in saying, oh, this person is more important to me. I'm not better. Especially if you're looking at yourself in the glory of who God is, the light of who Christ is. But again, that comes when we're saturated with the word of God and in prayer and walking closely to him. And then the fourth means of unity, verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Now notice he says that do not merely look out for your own, own personal interests. He doesn't say neglect yourself. He doesn't say that at all. I mean, by God, please, regard, like take a shower, <laughs> brush your teeth. It is assumed that we are going to take care of ourselves. It is assumed that we're going to have a meal. It's assumed that we're going to do these things for ourselves. So, but what he's saying, don't merely just do that. Look at the latter half of verse 4. But also for the interests of others. It is to consider other Christians. And just like I think George was saying earlier, church, it's not just about coming to church, listening to a sermon and and go on your way and just live your week the way you want to live. Church, it's not the building. We are the church. The church gathers together. 
the church is made up of so that we would bring glory and honor to God. There's unity, but there's diversity. If we were to look at, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about the body by the Spirit of God who gives members in the church to do very different things. You know, I like to teach. I like to tell people what to do. When I talk about my wife, she has the gift of hospitality. She gets them in. I tell them what to do. <laughs> but those gifts, they're working together. And so when one member is not being part of the church and not fulfilling the very thing that God has asked them to do, everybody suffers. This is why we have fellowship groups. This is why we have small groups. This is why we have Bible studies, because we want you guys to be involved with people. You see, you can't live in isolation and love people. You just can't do it. There needs to be interactions. There needs to be rubbing some shit. Be offended a few times so that way it gives an opportunity to love and to forgive. That's the body of Christ. That's the beauty. And then when the world looks at us, they say, well, those guys are different. What's going on with them? We are not to seek our own. Rather, we are to seek the glory of God for the glory for his purpose and his purpose alone. So when we think about unity, again, this is not the secular idea of unity. It's not a sports team striving for this common goal of winning the Super Bowl. No, it's not about that. It's about bringing glory and honor together. It's us working together for the common goal, again, for the furtherance of the gospel. But if I was to break it down really simple for you, it comes with every member keeping their eyes, gazing upon the Lord, and having in its loving Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And he goes on. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image of God from one degree to the next. The more that we behold Christ, the more that we consider, meditate, ponder on the beauty, the glory, the majesty of who he is, we become more like him. There's a quote I wanted to read to you. It's by Tozer in his book called The Pursuit of God. And it's in a chapter, it's um, The Gaze on the Lord. And he says this, and it's really about this intimacy with the Lord that he's talking about, the context. And Tozer says, Someone may fear that we are magnifying private religion out of all proportion, that the us of the New Testament is being displaced by a selfish I. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers met together, each one looking away to Christ. One are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly, possibly be were they to become unity conscience and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. 
The whole church of God gains when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and a higher life. That is the call that we have, united in Christ. I hope you're blessed. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you again for this time. Father, I pray that you would bless the rest of this day. I pray that we're able to hear and receive as we um, go listen to this sermon today, Lord. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you by your spirit will please us convict us. Show us, Lord, in areas where we can be more faithful to you today. Help us to walk closely. Help us to cherish Christ. Lord, Lord, help us to really consider the reasons for the unity, God. Help us to remember the characteristics, what that looks like. And God, let us remember the means, how we are to do it. God be honored, be glorified. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.